0: The rest of you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Those are the opening words to the famous novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. But what I want to do is I want to share with you a tale of two churches. These are two hypothetical churches, but they could be in anywhere in these United States of America. Let's talk about Pastor Joe's church, the first church. Pastor Joe had a multi-million dollar building... It was in the greatest spot in town. He had more people coming than you could count. He had all these programs. He he captured everyone's attention with his charismatic stories about his life. He was more of a motivational speaker than he really was a preacher of God's word. And people were flocking like droves to see this toothy grin preacher on the jumbotron talk about his happy little life. He never preached about sin. He never preached about repentance. He never preached about hell or judgment, but, but he was drawing crowds from all over the area to come to this church. And so the question that we've got to ask is, in the midst of all this, was God there? Was God pleased with what happened at Pastor Joe's church. And no one would seem to ask the question otherwise. Well, what do you mean, was God there? Obviously, God's hand's upon this church. We're seeing thousands of people coming. We're having these multi-million dollar buildings. We've got a multi-billion dollar, maybe not a billion dollar, million dollar budget. All these things are happening. Obviously, God's hand has to be upon Pastor Joe's church. But the question still lingers. Was God there? Church number two, Pastor Steve. Now, Pastor Steve wasn't the greatest communicator. Their church wasn't a multi-million dollar facility. As a matter of fact, it was tucked away in in maybe a bad part of town. Not a lot of people were flocking to hear Pastor Steve's messages, but each week, he faithfully delivered God's word. Faithfully, week to week. And they weren't winning thousands and thousands of people with their great programs and their flashiness, but for some strange reason, their church seemed to experience the power of the gospel. It was like a family. People were coming to faith in Christ, not in droves, but but slowly and steadily. There was a feeling of family. There was love. There was encouragement. They were meeting real needs in the community. And and the question's got to be asked, was God truly there? Was God pleased with Pastor Steve's church? Was the hand of the Lord upon this church? You see, they didn't really necessarily pray for great things to happen. They just wanted God's hand to be upon their church. Pastor Steve's church didn't want to be popular. They just wanted to be faithful. Samuel Chadwick has said this, the church that is man-managed instead of God-governed, is doomed to failure. And I would add my own tidbit. A ministry that is Madison Avenue and Hollywood trained, but not dependent and spirit filled, is also doomed to failure and will never experience the power of God. Now, these are two hypothetical churches, and we can't make a judgment, but we have to look back and ask the question. It's a very good question. What does it look like for God's hand of blessing? To be upon a church? What does it look like for a church to be a thriving, growing, spirit filled, Christ exalted, word saturated congregation where God is truly blessing? It may have nothing to do with numbers, it may have nothing to do with buildings, it may have nothing to do with budgets. Those things are, are in themselves important. But the question we've got to ask is what does it truly look like for God's hand to be upon a church? So what I want to do this morning is to introduce Antioch. And you ask the question, what does it mean to introduce Antioch? We come to a major part in the book of Acts this morning where we see the church move from Jerusalem. Everything's happened in Jerusalem. And now we're having the first church plant outside of Jerusalem, the church in Antioch. And as we will see, The church in Antioch is a very special church. As a matter of fact, as I've been reading and studying the book of Acts, Antioch is the church I want Emmanuel to be when we grow up. If you can say it that way. But before we get to Antioch, let's review for a moment what we've seen. Last week, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, crosses that major social and racial barrier, Remember last week we looked at the how how the the gospel breaks down the dividing wall of racial hostility goes to Cornelius' house Peter has the vision of the trance and and the sheet coming down and and, and all the reptiles and animals that were unclean and God says go and go to Cornelius' house and so Peter goes there, he preaches the gospel The, the Gentile family the Cornelius' family, they believe they're baptized and God does an amazing work of reaching the Gentiles of all people with The gospel. And then a firestorm happens because this was unheard of. The the, the word gets back to the church in Jerusalem that God is actually saving the Gentiles. And so Peter has to go back to Jerusalem. He has to basically defend himself. And so he goes back to the church in Jerusalem and says, yes, it's true. There was this vision, I was in a trance, the sheet was lowered, goes through the whole story and says, yes, I went and I preached the gospel to Cornelius' house and God has granted salvation to the Gentiles. If you remember, Gentiles were considered dogs. They were considered outsiders. They were racially, socially, culturally outsiders. But God had broken down the dividing wall of hostility and now from that movement comes this new church in Antioch. And so what I want us to do is I want us to pick up the story. We actually ended last week at the end of chapter 10. I'm going to skip over the first um, few verses of chapter 11 because basically it's Peter recounting what had happened. But let's pick up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 17. This is the tail end of Peter's basically speech back to the church in Jerusalem of what God had done with Cornelius and his household. Acts eleven seventeen. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It begins with this report by Peter, and the church in Jerusalem is praising God That the Gentiles have received salvation. They praised God there in verse 18. When they heard these things, they glorified God, saying, To the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is a fulfillment of Acts 1 8. See, what had happened was in Acts 1-8, the Holy Spirit said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that, right? The church in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Judea. We've seen that already. You'll be my witnesses in Samaria. We've seen that already. But he also says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so that's beginning to happen. They're beginning to spread out. They're beginning to scatter out. And the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. And so here's what happens. In the power of the Holy Spirit, these, these Christians that are scattered, they end up in this place called Antioch. Now, now what's so significant about the town of Antioch? Historians will tell you that it was the most prominent city in the Roman Empire, the third most prominent city behind Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. It was called Antioch the Beautiful. Because in Antioch, they had this long colonnade of paved streets with these trees and these towers. And it was just this beautiful city. It was a city of art. It was a city of architecture. It was a city of business. It was a, it was a cosmopolitan center of, of industry, of, uh, of, of entertainment. It was a very powerful city. It had over 500,000 people in the city. Very, very similar probably to what would be a modern-day New York City or San Francisco, or some type of, of cosmopolitan city of education, art, and industry, and commerce, and culture. So amid this very pagan, Gentile, powerful city, God sees fit to plant a thriving church, the church in Antioch, the first Gentile church. So what I want us to do is I want us to look and see what makes this church in Antioch so special. Why were they so special? What marked this church in Antioch? And what I want us to do is, is I want us to see what a church looks like that has God's hand of blessing upon it. Because notice verse 21. Notice the, the very specific words that Luke, the writer of Acts, says. The hand of the Lord was with them. God's hand was in this. God was blessing this church. And from this passage of Scripture, what we see are six characteristics of a church that God's hand is upon. Six characteristics of a church that is powerfully under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, a church that is growing, a church that's thriving. What are these six characteristics? Well, let's look at them. First of all, the first characteristic, it is a church that experiences God-given repentance. god given repentance notice what it says there in verse 18 when they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified god saying then to the gentiles also god has granted repentance that leads to life and we've talked a lot about repentance over the past few weeks what is repentance basically it means to turn from your sin you hate your sin you mourn your sin, you grieve over your sin, you do an about-face from your sin, you do a 180-degree turn from your sin, you turn from that sin, and you turn toward Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you from your sins. And this turning, this this repentance is is really not something that you can do. God has to do this work in you. Notice it says God granted them repentance. It's a gift that God gives. Sinners who are lost, sinners who are blind, sinners who are enslaved to their sin, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come and bring conviction in our lives. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and brings that conviction, when the Holy Spirit comes and causes our eyes to be open to our sin, what does he do? He works in us that ability to be able to repent. So God grants that repentance repentance we've been freed from the shackles of sin to turn from that sin and turn toward Christ Paul says it in 2nd Timothy this way 2nd Timothy 2 24 through 25 the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth again it says there that God is the one that grants repentance So so repentance is this deeply felt sorrow. It's a remorse. It's a hatred of your sin that involves turning from that sin and turning towards Christ. Notice verse 21, what it says there. In verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed did what? Turned to the Lord. Now, if they turn to the Lord, it's implying there that they turned from their sin and embraced Christ alone as their Savior. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10 through 10 says this, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's such a thing as a worldly grief where you may just be sorry that you got caught. You may be sorry of the consequences of your sins. You may be sorry that it's kind of uncomfortable, but, but you haven't really been grieved into truly repenting and turning from those sins. They turned to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 says this, For they themselves report concerning to us what kind of reception we had among you, how you turned, from, or you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turn from your idolatry, from your sin, you turn from that, and you turn toward Christ, the living God. Now, that happens when you become a Christian, right? You, you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. But repentance is not a, just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing process. As a Christian, our lifestyle is to be one of continual, ongoing Repentance. Listen to the words of Richard Owen Roberts, what he says. I think this is a great definition of repentance. He says this, In genuine biblical repentance, one does not turn merely to seek to escape the wrath of God or the guilt of conscience. The repentant person turns from all that displeases God toward that which pleases him. The repentant individual turns his back upon sin and himself and in faith turns to Jesus Christ. This turning is a day-by-day year after year process of refusing to follow sin and self and of deliberately following Christ so we got to ask a question how are we doing emmanuel at repenting are we repenters is Emmanuel Baptist Church a culture where repentance is even fostered? Or do we put on masks? Do we hide our sin? Do we, do we, do we cultivate secret sins? Do we basically just walk around and say, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and, and I'm not going to admit I ever have any problems and I'm just going to kind of deal with things and hide things? Or, or are we truly a transparent congregation where we truly practice repentance? We're quick to confess sin. We turn from that sin. We repent of that sin. So the first thing about a church that has God's hand upon it is that it's a repenting church. But secondly, the second characteristic, it's a church that values gospel preaching. Look at verse 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word speaking the word they they're preaching they're proclaiming the word notice verse 20 but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who in coming to Antioch spoke the hellness also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. That word preaching, you need to kind of get out of your mind some of the concepts we have of preaching. Yes, what I stand up here and I rant and rave, that's called preaching, but the word used in the Bible there is where we get our word evangelism. It means evangelizing. They were simply declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. And so contrary to popular belief, and there's a lot of different views out there, here's what the Bible teaches. God is pleased to grow and strengthen his church through the powerful consistent preaching of the gospel the message that week to week comes from this pulpit is not cute little stories about how to get your life together it's not a motivational speech from a guy that tells you a bunch of stories about my own personal life what's going to transform you is not hearing about me what's going to transform you is this word of god Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter two, one through five. This was Paul's resume. Would you have picked Paul as your next pastor if you saw his resume here? Most of it, most churches in America wouldn't pick Paul as their as their next pastor, because notice what Paul says. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was in you with weakness, fear. And much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul saying, "When I came to you, I just wanted to preach Jesus." I was fearful, I was timid, and when I came to you, I just wanted to talk to you about Jesus. And so if anybody's going to get saved, it's not because of my eloquence, it's not because of my power, it's because God has done a work in your life to show you Jesus. I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, as, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants. Now here's the issue. If week after week I come up here and all I do is tell you about myself and I don't lay forth before you the glories of Christ, crucified, risen, glorified, if I don't show you Jesus Christ and the need to come to him in repentance and faith, the need to bow down and worship him, I haven't done my job. You don't need to come into this place and hear about me. Now, obviously, sometimes I'll tell you some stories, but what you need to come in here and what I need to come in here and, and hear is about Christ revealed from his scriptures. And so, this church, this Antioch church, was a church that valued the preaching of God's word. Notice what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Timothy, your job is to preach, to teach, to declare God's word. Now listen to this, 2 Timothy 4, 1-4. If this does not describe our culture today, I do not know what does. Here's what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach little stories about yourself. Is that what the word says? I'm glad you caught that. You're awake. What does it say? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen to the wisdom of Jay Adams. Jay Adams is really talking to pastors here, but I think it's applicable to all of us. He's talking to, to this is really addressed to pastors, but he says this, If you preach a sermon that would be acceptable to the member of a Jewish synagogue or to a Unitarian congregation, then there's something radically wrong with us. Jesus Christ must be at the heart of every sermon you preach. You must not exhort your congregation to do whatever the Bible requires of them as though they could fulfill those requirements on their own, but only as a consequence of the saving power of the cross and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, God uses powerful preaching to grow his church, but unless you think it's all up to me, think again. Because what you're going to see here in the text, look at verse 19 and 20. Those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen spoke the word, There were some of them, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first instance in the book of Acts where there is preaching evangelism not by an apostle. It's not Peter. (coughs) It's not John. It's not a deacon like Philip. It's not Stephen. Who's doing the evangelism? Unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene lay people. Ordinary, average, non-apostles, non-preachers, non-teachers, non-deacons, ordinary men are going and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the church grows not just by the pastor preaching, but by you guys in the pew going out into your workplace among your family, your friends, your school, wherever God calls you to be, and you are opening your mouth. You are evangelizing. You're declaring the glories of Christ. You are sharing the gospel. Again, the focus is not on you. The focus is on Christ and him crucified. So, so preaching can either be me up here on the stage preaching, but most importantly, God's going to grow this church through you going out into your communities being scattered to share the gospel. And it's encouraging right here. This church was built on a preaching ministry, but not from a professional preacher. It's not until Barnabas comes down and really starts pastoring the church that they really even have a pastor. This is lay people starting this church by just going out and sharing the gospel with their neighbors. It's an amazing thing. So, so the first thing about a church that has God's hand upon it, they're repenting. Number two, they value preaching. But number three, it's a church that celebrates joyful encouragement. Now word gets back to Jerusalem, right? That Jerusalem's the mother church. Word gets back to Jerusalem that things are going great in this new church in Antioch something's going on down there in Antioch. So what do they do? They send Barnabas. And you remember who Barnabas was? Barnabas was the son of encouragement. Barnabas goes down to Antioch to find out what's going on. And notice what happens in verse 23. Let's start back in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, the son of encouragement, Barnabas. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, with steadfast purpose. What does he see? He comes and he sees firsthand the grace. He sees this church that's repenting. He sees this church that values preaching. He sees this church where people are evangelizing. He sees God's hand upon his church and he's overjoyed. This is a great situation. And what does Barnabas do? He begins to exhort them, to encourage them to remain faithful. He does what's called the ministry of, of exhortation, the ministry of encouragement. Now, what does it mean to exhort? To exhort. It, the, the Greek word really means to come alongside someone and help them. It was often used in military terms. If you were on the front lines of the battle, and you were struggling in your, in your, in your defenses, you were struggling in the, in the battle, struggling in the fight, they would send reinforcements from the back to come up and help. That's what exhortation is, sending in reinforcements to come up and help when you're struggling. And that's what we need as a church. We need the ministry of exhortation. We need people to come alongside us and encourage us and fight for us and put their arms around us and encourage us and get alongside us and get down in the trenches with us. And there needs to be the steady, consistent, constant ministry of encouragement. Why do we need encouragement? I can tell you why I need encouragement because sometimes our hearts are prone to fear, aren't they? How many of you as Christians sometimes just have fears? Don't have to raise your hand. How many times, even maybe this week, you've wanted to give up? A lot of us have been there before. How many of you struggle with overwhelming temptation? How many of you have issues in your life that you just can't handle alone? God has never designed us to be out there alone handling all these things. We need others to come into our lives and build us up, encourage us, walk beside us, give us strength, give us encouragement. And that's what Barnabas did. That's a Barnabas type of ministry. What does Ephesians, I mean, what does 1 Thessalonians 5.11 say? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. That's a command. We're to encourage and build one another up. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart. Unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, there's that word again, encourage, come alongside. Exhort one another, what? Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How many of you have gone a day in your life without being encouraged? If that's the case, that's sin. We don't think in terms like that, do we? But what does the writer say here? We are to encourage each other every day. Wow. Are we receiving and giving the encouragement every day? And then Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging. So what does a church look like that has God's hand upon it? Number one, it's a repenting church. Number two, it's a preaching church. Number three, it's an encouraging church. But number four, it's a church that produces spirit-empowered leadership. A church is only as healthy as its leaders. Notice verse 24. What do we find out about Barnabas? Barnabas was really sent down to basically kind of pastor and lead and guide this, this, this new Gentile church. What does it say in verse 24 about Barnabas? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas operated not in his flesh, not in his own cleverness, not in his ingenuity. Barnabas was a man that was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He, and that's what we need in our leaders. We need leaders who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice, he understood his weakness, now, why do you say that? How did, how did Barnabas understand his weakness? Now, think about it. You get to this, fledged, this this new church that all these great things are happening. People are being added to the Lord. Evangelism is going like crazy. People are getting saved. And Barnabas comes down there and says, Wow, this is way too much than I can handle as a leader. I need help. So what does Barnabas do? He goes and gets a helper. Who does he go and get as his helper? Of all people, Paul. Look what it says, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. I think that's so interesting. Barnabas didn't have to be the top dog. Barnabas wasn't threatened by Saul. Barnabas realized that he couldn't do this thing on his own, so he goes and finds another spirit-empowered leader and says, let's come and do this thing together because I need help. Now, you need to ask the question, What a is Empowered or spirit filled leadership look like? And you say, I know what that looks like, Sean. I watch TV and it's a guy in a white jacket throwing his, you know, blowing on people and knocking them down, getting slain in the spirit. That's what it right means, spirit filled, right? No. That's just some wacko on TV making a lot of money. Maybe, I don't know. What does it mean to be spirit filled? Spirit filled. Let's not be afraid of that as Baptists. Sometimes we're afraid of the term spirit filled because we think weird things are going to happen. Let me read to you what Paul says spirit-filled looks like. Ephesians 5, 18-21. He gives us the definition of what it means to be spirit-filled. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay. He's going to give four evidence is here of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You will see those in verses 19 through 20. Number one, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Number two, singing and making melody to the Lord with your, your heart. Three, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And number four, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul's using this metaphor for drunkenness. When you get pulled over for being drunk, what does the, the policeman say? You are driving what? Under the influence. Being spirit filled means you're just under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You're being controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Greek tense, there, it's a command that tells us to keep on continually being filled. So, really, being spirit filled is more of a condition, it's more of a lifestyle. It's more the manner of your life where you're constantly and continually asking the Holy Spirit to fill you so that you can be a spirit-filled person as a lifestyle. And you see those four things. What are they? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It's, it's, it's loving worship. It's being a joyful person. It's having melody in your heart. It's, it's demonstrating the fruit of the spirit. It's being thankful. It's it's submitting to one another. That's what spirit-filled looks like. It's having the fruit of the spirit. It's having the joy of God exude from you. It's being thankful. And so this church in Antioch had spirit-filled leadership. And thus, it should have everybody being spirit-filled. When everybody's filled with the spirit, when we're all experiencing the joy of the Lord, when, when the Holy Spirit's producing his fruit in our lives, when we're encouraging one another, when we're loving one another, when we're submitting to one another, that's a healthy environment for a church, and spirit-empowered leaders need to ensure that that's the kind of culture that's created in a church. And Paul and Barnabas were those type of leaders. They were spirit-filled leaders that looked out for the good of the church. So we get to the fifth issue. The fifth issue is this. It's a church that emphasizes sound teaching. Not just a preaching ministry, but a teaching ministry. Notice what it says there. The second half of verse 20, of 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year... They met with the church and taught a great many people. What did Paul and Barnabas do for an entire year? They got this church, things are exploding, they need someone to teach them. They need discipleship. They need sound teaching. And for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas sat with this church and taught them. It's important that the church has a solid teaching ministry. Notice what Colossians one twenty eight says. Him we proclaim... Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? What's the end of why we do this? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Timothy 4.13, we looked at this earlier, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy 2.15 do your best to present to your, yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth now let me be real practical this morning real practical and real pointed there's a lot of teaching ministries going on in this church right now as a matter of fact at 9 o'clock this morning there was a thing called growth groups have you heard of it? sometimes called Sunday school Bible study and guess what? That's a place where you can be taught. And so let me encourage you, if you're not part of a growth group, you need to be part of a growth group. And here's the issue. There's no excuse not to be part of a growth group. Here's why. Number one, if you have kids, we have something for your kids, all ages, from bed babies all the way up to youth group. So while you're in adult Bible study, your kids are being taught. Guess what? Number two, you're already coming here at 10.15, right? Why not just come an hour earlier At nine o'clock, you're already coming. Maybe you have to get your kids up a little earlier and be part of the teaching ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church. You can only get so much from me up here on the stage talking to you. You need to be in a small group where you can can ask questions, you can get encouragement, you can dive deeper into the Bible, you can talk, you can discuss, and you're not gonna be expected. If you've never gone to a growth group, if you've never gone to adult Sunday school class, here's what you should not expect. We're not gonna expect you to know everything about the Bible. We're not even going to expect you to pray out loud. Nobody's going to call upon you to pray out loud. Nobody's going to ask you to read anything. Nobody's going to ask you a deep question about burying your soul, okay? What they might do is ask you your name. I think you could probably answer that, right? If you go to a Sunday school class or a growth group, guess what? You can just sit there and listen. I give you perfect permission to do that. You can just listen and then ask questions later. But you need to be in a small group Bible study. It's crucial. I will say this. We as elders, this is not even in my notes, but you need to know this. We as elders have done a 13-year study on Sunday school attendance in this church. And about 13 years ago, average Sunday school, worship, average Sunday school attendance to average worship attendance, we were averaging about 70% of people that are in worship, 70% are in Sunday school. Guess where we're at now? 40%. Over a 13-year trajectory, we're losing ground. For some, for some strange reason, there's a lot of you that are sitting out here in the, in, the, in, the, in the pews getting a lot from the worship service, but you haven't taken that next step to connect to a growth group, to a Sunday school class. Can I just challenge you just to, to take a risk and do it? I mean, it's only an hour earlier, 9 o'clock. We got stuff for your kids. We got classrooms down here. We got coffee. That, that should just make enough for you right there. We got free coffee. Help you stay awake. There's no reason why you shouldn't be involved In a growth group, okay. Here's the sixth one. Now that I've got, now that I've already stepped on your toes, I'm gonna really step on your toes, okay? I'm kind of like segueing up to this last point because I hardly ever talk about this, but it's in the text. Okay. Here's the sixth thing that a church that has God's hand upon it, it practices generous giving. I want you to notice this little last story here in verses 27 through 30. What happens? This prophet Agabus predicts that there's going to be a famine. And there's a famine. And what happens? The church back in Jerusalem, the mother church, the church where everything started, they're struggling financially. They're having hard times. So what does the church in Antioch do? The church in Antioch says, hey, we need to start giving money. We need to start giving an offering to help the mother church. And notice what the text says. It says there in verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Jerusalem. Now, this was not a mandated tithe. This was not some type of harsh, everybody's got to give. What does it say? They gave according to what? Their ability. It's called proportional giving. You give according to what God's given you proportionately some of you are going to be able to give more some of you are going to give less it's not necessarily the amount that matters it's in the proportion so here's what happens when God raises your level of of income when God increases your standard of living what should happen it should increase your standard of giving here's what happens to a lot of people God gives you more money and what do you do you use that for yourself let me let let, let you listen to 2nd Corinthians 9 6 through 8 listen to Paul This is a biblical principle that I think sometimes we need to hear. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. One thing you'll never hear from me is I will never ask you to give. I can't command you to give. Because the Bible says you've got to determine in your heart what you're going to give. You can't give under compulsion. We can't force you to give. We can't make you to give. You've got to give spontaneously. You've got to give generously. It's got to come from within you. It's got to come from, from inside you. I can't force you to do that. But Paul's very clear here that you will sow what you reap. Now, Randy Alcorn has got a great little book called The Treasure Principle. It's about money and finances. I think we may even have a few copies here in the church library. But let me let, me, let, me let you listen to what he says. He writes this, I carry in my wallet a little card. On one side it says, God owns every treasure. I'm his investment manager. On the other side it says, God wants me to use earthly treasures to store up heavenly treasures. Have you ever thought of yourself as God's investment manager? It, makes, it sounds a little different, doesn't it? God has given you resources. He expects you to invest them in things that are internal. Let me, let me go on to tell you what else he writes. He says this, Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and exalts him. Ironically, many people can't afford to give precisely because they're not giving. Does that make sense? Many people can't afford to give because they're not giving in the first place. Listen else, what he says. If we pay our debts to God first, then we will incur his blessing to help pay our debts to men. But when we rob God to pay men, we rob ourselves of God's blessing. No wonder we don't have enough. It's a vicious cycle and it takes obedient faith to break out of it. Let me give you three verses on money. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Give him your first. First Timothy 6, 9-10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money there, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You probably know someone like that. Money has eaten their lunch. Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I very rarely preach on giving. You guys can probably over the past seven years I've been here count on one hand how many sermons I've had on tithing, giving. But let me just say this. I'm thankful as a church we're making budget. I'm thankful as a church you are generous. I'm thankful that we have not had any financial issues related to this church in many years. But let me just tell you what national statistics will tell you. You look at national studies and they will say this, and this is generous. This is a generous assessment. They say that evangelical Christians give about 2% of their income to the church and not even on a consistent basis. 2%. And I've seen this in my ministry time and time again. When you struggle financially, it seems like everything else is a struggle. I, I can't tell you how it often works, but when you struggle financially, it seems like you have other issues that just keep compounding, compounding. And when you get the giving thing under control, it almost seems like the rest of the stuff starts falling into place. Early in our marriage, we did not practice tithing and giving. Don and I, early in our marriage, we'd give a check here and there to the church, and, and we didn't really, we weren't consistent, we weren't intentional, but it wasn't until a few years into our marriage that we finally decided, okay, the first check that we're going to write to the Lord is to the church. And so consistently, we sit down, she gets paid, I get paid, we write our first check to the Lord when we get paid. And sometimes that's hard, believe me. Because what happens a lot of times? It's painful to write that check when your kid needs braces. It's painful to write that check when you have to have an emergency car repair or or, or an emergency medical bill. Sometimes it's painful. And there's been times where I've said, God, I don't want to write this check because there's other things going. And God has to remind me, honor me with your first fruits. Seek first my kingdom. The rest of these things will be added to you. And so I write that check not joyfully at times. Sometimes it's painful. But you write it, and then God blesses you. Now, I'm not, you guys know, I'm not a health, wealth, prosperity preacher. I'm not up here, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. I'm not some kind of guy that's going to tell you to, you know, sow your seed to to Sean Cole's ministry, and God's going to make you rich. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there's a biblical principle of giving, that when you give to the Lord, God will bless you. It may not be financially, but it may be spiritually, but there is a biblical principle about giving. Okay, we've been introduced to the church in Antioch. What was so special about this church? It was a repenting church. It was a preaching church. It was an encouraging church. It was a spirit-filled church. It was a teaching church. And they were a giving church. Like I said, this is a church I want us to be when we grow up. But a church is only as good as its individual members. We We can step back and say, okay, here's the macro level. Here's this great church in Antioch, macro level. But when the rubber meets the road a church is made up of the micro level of the individual Christians so let me ask you some individual questions this morning let's take this out of the realm of, of this big big church thing and let's take it down to you personally where are you this morning if these are the six things that characterize a corporate church these should be the six things that characterize you as an individual person connected to the church so first of all are you a repenting Christian are you one that's quick to confess your sins are you a repenter? Do you grieve over your sin? Do you go to the Lord Jesus and do you ask for that forgiveness? Do you trust in the sufficiency of the cross? Are you a repenter? Secondly, when it comes to a preaching... Do you value the preaching of the word? Do you come to church expecting for the word to be open? Not little happy stories about Sean's life, but the word. And are you one that goes out and is encouraged to share the gospel yourself? Are you one, a lay person, if you will, an ordinary average person? Are you going out into your workplace, into your family, in your neighborhoods? And are you sharing the gospel of Christ? This church was an encouraging church. Are you an encourager? Are you an encourager? Are you one that gets alongside a person? Do you go to the front of the battle lines? Do you get down in the trenches of their life and walk <laughs> alongside them, lo- arm in arm, and encourage and love and pray and come alongside people? Worthy is the church that had spirit empowered leadership? Are you praying for the leadership of Emmanuel? Are you praying for me as your pastor that I would be spirit-filled? Are you praying for Pastor Andrew that he would be spirit-filled? Are you praying for our elders that they would be spirit-filled? Are you praying for our deacons that they would be spirit-filled? Are you praying for the leadership of this church that we would be healthy, we would be spirit-filled so that we could lead the church with wisdom? That we can lead the church in the way that God wants us to go? It was a teaching church, and I've already harped on this. Are you involved in the teaching ministry of this church? If you're not involved in an adult Bible study, growth group, Sunday school class, whatever other word you want to call it, adult Bible fellowship, we've called it everything. It doesn't matter. It's adults in a room learning the Bible. We can call it whatever we want to call it. If you're not involved in that, why not? Make a commitment to come next Sunday to a growth group class. And lastly, are you a joyful giver? Are you a joyful giver? Do you give joyfully to the Lord of your first fruits? Do you see needs and meet those financially through giving of your tithes and offerings? Let me be very blunt. What I've just articulated to you with these five, with these six characteristics, it really is what it means to be a Christian. And I've saved this for last. Look at verse twenty-six. In Antioch, the disciples were what first called christians before in acts they've been called saints they've been called brothers they've been called apostles disciples people of the way but now they're called christians why christian because christ is on their lips because they live out what it means to follow christ they are followers of christ they're preaching jesus christ and him crucified it's about christ it's about the glory of christ it's about the person of christ it's about the work of christ and a lot of people throw the word christian around a lot you know we're a Christian nation. I'm a, I'm a devout Christian. We throw that word around, and in our culture, it means nothing. I will say this. What is a Christian? Look at those six things. Are you a repenter? Do you love God's word being preached? Are you an encourager? Are you spirit-filled? Are you loving to be taught God's word? Are you a joyful giver? Those, is what, those things def- define what it means to be a Christian. And we've got to ask the question, is Emmanuel truly a Christian church? Does everything we do, say, think, speak, feel, experience, does everything about us, both corporately and individually, point to King Jesus as our all in all, as our treasure? Are we experiencing the power and the presence of Christ? Is he our glory? Is he our treasure? Is he our all in all? Are we following him? Are we submitting to him? Are we loving him? Are we surrendering him? May we truly live up to what it means, the name, May we truly live up to the name of what it means to be Christian. And may Emmanuel truly be Antioch when we grow up. And that may be a long time from now because we're always in the process of sanctification. But my prayer as your pastor is that we would be a people that reflect these six characteristics and it could truly be said of Emmanuel Baptist Church, those people there are truly what it means to be called Christian. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. just giving you six things to think about. Six ways for you to possibly maybe evaluate your own personal life this morning. And Maybe there's one of those six that really resonates with you, that really connects with you, that the Holy Spirit's maybe been using to to convict you of of where you're at personally this morning. Maybe it's an area of repentance. I'm, I'm not repenting in a certain area. Maybe it's evangelism. I'm not sharing the gospel with my friends and family the way I should be. Maybe the Lord has laid upon your heart someone that you need to encourage and you just haven't taken the time or the energy to go encourage somebody else. Maybe you haven't been praying for spiritual leadership to be spirit-filled. Maybe you're not involved in, in the teaching ministries of this church. Maybe you're having a struggle with giving of your tithes and offerings. I don't know. Only the Holy Spirit knows. But I want you to use this time as an opportunity for you alone with the Lord ask him to search your heart and to make some strong commitments this morning about how through the power of the gospel you will seek to be what it truly means to be Christian according to this model we've seen laid forward for us this morning in the book of Acts. So spend some time alone with the Lord this morning. Thank you for this model in the church in Antioch of, of really what a church that has the hand of God upon it looks like. And Lord, I know we have a far ways to go as Emmanuel and like we looked earlier I don't necessarily want us to be popular I just want us to be faithful to be the church you've called us to be and Lord we have these, these measuring sticks that, that we look at as far as what your will is for a church Lord that we would be a repenting church a giving church a joyful church a, an encouraging church a teaching and preaching church a spirit filled church and Lord I feel so weak because I can't make this happen I can't manufacture it I can't force it I can't coerce it It has to be the work of the Spirit, and so that's where we sit back and trust in your power, God, to do this work. And so, Lord, would you come and do a work that only you can do? Would you change our hearts? Would you convict us? Lord, help us to make concrete changes, even this morning as we walk out of this place, of of concrete commitments that we're gonna make to change. Maybe it's getting involved in an adult Bible study class. Maybe it's praying about giving. Maybe it's writing a note or making a phone call and encouraging someone this week. Maybe it's taking time out to pray for spiritual leadership. Maybe it's going to a friend or a neighbor and telling them the gospel. Or whatever we need to do to be obedient, give us the power and the strength to do that this morning. We trust in your sufficiency. We trust in your power. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.